Karen, we call this podcast Before We Go. Why did we choose that name? Well, anyone sitting here in the studio would know because they'd get a good look at us. You are a white-haired man, and I'm a little old white-haired lady. <laughs> You're a very dignified white-haired I'm glad man. You, I'm glad you didn't <laughs> give any more details. Okay. So uh, before say, we go, we have some things to say is really okay. what this is all about. Say we both had an accident of some kind. Uh, what would we want people to remember us as talking about over and over and over again? Don't answer yet. Uh, just take a moment to think about it, okay? Okay. I'm there. <laughs> Welcome to the Before We Go podcast featuring Dr. David Maines and his wife, noted author, Karen Maines. Here's David and Karen Maines. So, what was your answer to my earlier question? Well, I think that periodically in the inner city church where you were a pastor, you began to preach on a certain topic. That topic has appeared and reappeared through 20 years of broadcasting in many of the books that we've written and have been published. And we're heading back into it again, I think, right now, and it would be the kingdom of God. It was one of the most preach topics that Jesus chose to emphasize. And we often have Christians who never even think about it. They don't really have a theology that they've developed about the kingdom of God. So we keep reemphasizing it. It's just integral to our thinking, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, very mm-hmm. much so. We started with three Chapel of the Year broadcasts. We did those some decades back, three decades back. So we're repeating with, them. With Chuck Colson right. and him talking about the kingdom of God. He was erudite and right on task. It was extraordinary hearing him. And, you know, he hadn't really been a Christian for a very long time, 10 years maybe. The scriptures were all new to him. But he was a kingdom man, that's for sure. It was a really interesting conversations. Uh-huh. And then we went to a dialogue that the two of us did on a normal podcast talking about the kingdom of God. What was the bottom line of that, Karen? You always reduce what we are going to say, no matter what, if it's a platform speaking or you're sermonizing or whatever, to one sentence. It's a key biblical truth sentence. You know why I do that, don't you? So that you know what you're going to say and so that everyone, when you're done, knows what you have said. And it's an extraordinarily helpful communication philosophy. So I can tell you what you said or what we said in the last podcast. Because we wrote it down. We wrote it down. Make sure we got it right. Go ahead. (laughs) Jesus felt his followers should live with the kingdom of God as the driving reality in their lives. Okay, the driving reality. What's really, really important. So now we're going to go back to some of the archives. Chapel of the Air broadcasts. We were in that for 20 years. And these are programs that were kind of picked out that I did on the kingdom of God. One could say it was about the Beatitudes, but they're about the kingdom Jesus announced. The second one we will listen to is how this kingdom message is all through the New Testament. Jesus was the one who introduced it, but it was picked up by his followers. They didn't miss a beat. And then the third of the programs that we'll listen to, one after the other, is how one becomes a part of this kingdom of God. Okay? So then the next time we get together, we'll dip into the series of award-winning children's books we wrote (laughs) called The Tales of the Kingdom. There are three books. It's a trilogy, Tales of the Kingdom, Tales of the Resistance, Tales of the Restoration, and 
They are about the king and the kingdom and the people that who live in that kingdom. It's imaginative literature. It's been in publication now for 35 years. I actually would like to, next time we get together, read one of oh, those that's great. tales. Yeah, let's we'll read the very first one, and then we'll say how we're teaching to children of all ages truths about the kingdom. I think people will enjoy that. But let's go back to these previous broadcasts we talked about when I was explaining the kingdom kind of to a newcomer. Searching for something to get your spiritual teeth into this summer? Hey, I think I have the solution. What's the topic? Thy Kingship Come, that's the title. And today's visit is called Kingdom Hype. I have always felt that Jesus intended the Beatitudes to be attention-getters rather than admonitions as to how people should live. These blessings, which is what Beatitudes actually means, are found in Matthew 5 at the start of Christ's famous Sermon on the Mount. An abbreviated and slightly different form of these blessings is found in Luke 6. The Beatitudes begin, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, and so on. Remember? Now, what I mean by attention-getters is that I don't believe Christ was saying that his followers should become mourners in order to be comforted. Neither do I think that he meant they should try to be poor in spirit, whatever that means, so that the kingdom can be theirs. Incidentally, in Luke 6, the words in spirit aren't even included. So in that chapter, if the traditional approach is followed, the crowd would have heard Christ say that to be a part of his kingdom, one is wise to be poor. Or at least to act poor, huh? Well, even so, these verses are usually preached as instructions concerning the way we're to act. In other words, yes, we are to mourn. We are to be poor in spirit, and so on. Now, granted, some of the Beatitudes fit that framework. We should hunger and thirst for righteousness if we want to be satisfied. That's verse 6. Or verse 7, we should be merciful if we wish to obtain mercy. Verse 8, we should be pure in heart if we want to see God. But again, in the context of Matthew's account of Christ's life and ministry, and especially in light of one special word used in the introduction to the sermon, I believe the Beatitudes are an announcement, a proclamation, a marvelous attention-getting device. That one word is gospel as it's used in Matthew 4.23. Christ went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now, gospel, as you know, means good news. So Jesus went around preaching good news about the kingdom of God. And I believe the Beatitudes quickly highlight the good news he was talking about. And that's why I like to paraphrase Christ's Beatitudes this way. Listen to me, people. I have good news for you. In what kingdom have the poor, or even the poor in spirit, been blessed? Never has this been the case. But in the kingdom I'm telling you about, because the poor are a personal concern of the king himself, they are truly blessed. Now that gets your attention, doesn't it? Or try this. 
Who listening to me right now lives in a kingdom where comfort is offered to people who are mourning? No one. But again, you are truly blessed, for I'm telling you of a new king and kingdom where those who mourn are comforted. Sound good? Are you who are meek and submissive always being imposed upon? Under my reign, people like you won't be taken advantage of. Rather, the most meek of you will inherit the earth. You can almost hear the responsive rumble move through the ranks, can't you? Christ continues, Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Then follow me and you'll find it. Be merciful and be blessed. For when I reign as your rightful sovereign, the merciful will in turn discover mercy. In fact, for those who are pure in heart, I tell you the pure in heart shall see God. What greater blessing can anyone want? And I promise to provide it. Peacemakers, your blessing will be that you'll be called sons of God. Can't you just feel the electricity in a crowd that hears these words? Now, do any of you know what persecution is? <laughs> Jesus was all too familiar with the conditions under which these people lived. You know persecution only too well, but here's more good news. If your persecution is for the sake of righteousness, my special kingdom will be yours forever. So you see, even when men revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, you can rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, if this isn't a good way to capture a crowd, I don't know what is. We can think of the Jews under Roman rule as being much like, well, like the Poles under Soviet domination. You can imagine the stir if a dynamic young Polish leader came along and declared, I offer you an alternative rule, folks. Here, Matthew reports, great crowds followed Christ from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond Jordan. Again, how to interpret Christ's words is a matter of opinion. Perhaps Matthew does mean that Jesus was saying, Be glad you're poor. Being poor is a blessing in disguise. But I think it would be hard to excite a crowd that way. And who would want to come back to hear the next message? Perhaps Jesus intended his words to be heard the way they're traditionally taught, as instructions for life. But back in the original setting, I really don't see the crowds rallying behind such a message. Do you? Be meek, folks. Adopt a mourner's mindset. I fear that in our society, we're so used to overstatement and hype and intense competition for the eyes and ears of the public, a false kind of attention-getting, that we're apt to miss the most electrifying message to the common man this world has ever known, Christ's public introduction of the kingdom of God. Isn't it true today that the world's little people should be thrilled anew by Christ's good news about the kingdom? 
Allow me to restate that. It's my key sentence for this visit, all right? The world's little people should be thrilled anew by Christ's good news of the kingdom. Ah, maybe this message doesn't interest the wealthy, the powerful, or the famous. Because often they're busy looking for more wealth or more power or more fame. And this is why Jesus said it's hard for them to enter the kingdom of which he spoke. But for common folk like us, who knows an option that compares to this one? Bow before Christ as your king. Submit to his rule and reap the benefits of his reign. That's what becoming a part of the kingdom involves. You who are poor in spirit, listen, in his kingdom, you won't remain second class. Slave, child, female, Gentile, for everyone alike, this ruler will become your brother. You who mourn, the king cares when you're hurt. Where else can you find a government head who even knows your name, much less shows a personal concern for you? Now hear me. King Jesus specializes in healing broken hearts. Are you feeling lowly? Are you meek? At the restoration, you will inherit the earth. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for what's fair and just? then you will have what you're seeking in Christ's kingdom. Let me quickly add, nowhere else. Do you see what you're being offered? And does it excite you? Or is it all old hat? Put yourself in the context of those who first heard our Lord preach, and you can begin, perhaps, to sense their excitement. Even in a free country where most people enjoy the daily benefits of affluence, I can't help but feel that many people will be gripped by Christ's proclamation. And he gave all he promised. It wasn't just campaign rhetoric. It was and still is the truth of the universe. Now I have a suggestion for you. I'm going to finish our visit with it. Let me encourage you to respond to Christ's blessings or his beatitudes, all right? By simply offering him a prayer of gratitude. A prayer that expresses your thanks. Thanks to the king for the grand opportunity you have of being a part of his kingdom today. Maybe you've never expressed such a thought before. Or perhaps you feel this kind of gratitude every day. In either case, this day... Simply pray something like the following. Jesus, the kingdom thrills me. And yes, I'm glad your reign includes heaven, but that it's also here and now. How wonderful. We have the best of both worlds. May the reality of your kingdom be an increasingly vital part of my consciousness. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes. Amen. A simple prayer of thanks for the privilege of full citizenship in the greatest kingdom of all time is not only appropriate, friend, but it also seals in the subject's heart the importance of this relationship. Do it today. Write down your own words of gratitude for this wonderful kingdom offered us by Christ. 
what a privilege. To be on a spiritual adventure like this, walking with the Son of God in your everyday world. So just to remind you, David has looked at the kingdom of God through the lens of the Beatitudes. And now we're going to move into him showing us a topical study of the kingdom of God through the whole New Testament. Thy kingship come. That's the extended series we return to as a new week begins. Dear David Maines reads a letter addressed to the Chapel of the Air. For 12 years, I was affiliated with a denomination that was always talking about kingdom work. No gospel was preached, but they were as busy as bees trying to bring in this kingdom. Frankly, I see no place in the Bible where Jesus is called king of the church. So, Brother Means, I know you love the Lord and you can go on trying to build the kingdom, but I say when you're all done, there's not going to be anyone in it. I'll respond. Despite her disagreement with me, I think I understand where this woman is coming from. Given her background of exposure to liberal theology and its version of the kingdom emphasis, I might have reacted the same way. Here's the crux of the misunderstanding. Christ's kingdom will never be complete before his return. Believers won't transform this earth into anything remotely resembling heaven before the great king's second coming. I'm not advocating that Christians attempt to bring in the kingdom by themselves although such a challenge has been falsely preached from many pulpits. No, Christians cannot usher in Christ's kingdom, but they should be involved in advancing it. I wrote back to this woman, Though I know you love the Lord, you're mistaken. Jesus is king over his people, even as he's the head of his body, the church. I think you know that, but you just don't feel it the way I believe you should. Let me illustrate, okay? A good number of years ago, my second son, Joel, became very interested in the royal wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Di. Joel then was in his first year of junior high school. Knowing it would please him, his Aunt Fran gave Joel a beautiful large book with many full-color photographs of the royal couple, and he was thrilled. One of Joel's friends, Charlie, came by and looked all through his book. Joel asked if he too was interested in this prince and his bride-to-be. Prince? What prince? Charlie asked. Prince Charles, Joel responded, the next in line to the throne of England, the guy you have been looking at in the book there. You mean this man in the pictures here? questioned Charlie. Of course, was Joel's incredulous reply. Who do you think he was? Well, how was I supposed to know he's a prince? Here he's playing polo, and in this picture he's fishing. Look, here he's got on one of those Scottish kilts, and on this page he's in a carriage. Come on, Charlie, said Joel. Where have you been? You can't be that dumb. Of course he's a prince. Sound unreal? Well, it is. I made up all of the conversation. I did it because I wanted to explain that a lot of people look repeatedly at God's book and still don't perceive that there are scores of pictures in it of Christ as the greatest king this world has ever known. They see Jesus in his various roles, healer, 
teacher and so on, but they entirely miss his major role as king. Jesus himself emphasized his kingship again and again. That was his major preaching theme, the kingdom. Yet somehow this great truth hasn't clicked into place for many people, even many believers. Perhaps you think the kingdom is emphasized in the Gospels, but not in Acts or the Epistles. Let me suggest that you do a Bible study. In this case, specifically looking through the New Testament for the idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Begin by compiling the list of all the times those two phrases appear. Using a concordance, write down each reference and what it says. For instance, Acts 8.12. Philip preached in Samaria about the kingdom of God. Surprisingly, you'll end up with over two pages of verses containing New Testament references to the kingdom other than those that appear in the Gospels. And that's just a start. Next, pursue related words to further develop the topic. Some will be obvious, like king. Certain king references in the concordance will have no value to this study. For instance... In Acts, the listings referring to King Herod and King Agrippa will not pertain to the kingdom of heaven. But in Acts 17.7, the people at Thessalonica accused the Christians of acting against Caesar by saying there is another king, Jesus. Now, this is a helpful reference. It should be written down. Tracing other related words like ruler, crown, throne, scepter, Sovereign, reign, glory. Other words reveal even more aspects of the kingdom. A third and final step is to note kingdom-type references as you read through Scripture in your daily Bible time. Any thoughts or words having a bearing on this topic might yield information otherwise overlooked. Let me give you an example from my own study. 2 Peter 1.11 caught my interest because Peter writes... There will be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Checking my master sheet, I saw I had recorded that reference already. But at verse 16, I hit pay dirt. Here was a strong word I hadn't found before, and how descriptive. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, writes Peter, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The phrase almost jumped off the page when I read it. His majesty. I recall one time asking myself, how would I address a real king? And I decided I would probably call him your majesty. But would I be comfortable saying that to God? After reading the passage from Peter, I had to bow my head, greatly moved, and say thanks. He had taught me the grandeur and the appropriateness of these words, His Majesty. The fact is, the truth of Christ's kingdom is sprinkled all through Acts, the Epistles, and Revelation. Consider such well-known phrases as these, Every knee shall bow. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. All things are under his feet. 
God hath highly exalted him above all rule and authority and power and dominion, made worthy of the kingdom of God, heirs of the kingdom which he promised, a kingdom that cannot be shaken by his appearing in his kingdom. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Fellow members of the kingdom of God transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. I, John, your brother, who shares with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom. That's just a sampling of the riches of kingdom imagery that the Bible has to share, and none of these phrases came from the Gospels. Some Christians may be like rebellious Anna in the play The King and I. When she sees the Siamese ruler lording it over people, she sings, Yes, your majesty, no, your majesty, show me how low to bow, your majesty. But her sarcasm doesn't alter the fact that the king is still the king. And in the same way, we do well to be reminded of the majesty of Christ. Say it again. We do well to be reminded of the majesty of Christ. In terms of being raised in the church, I'm not much different than that woman whose letter I read at the beginning of this broadcast. Yet in all those years, right up through high school, the kingdom somehow escaped me. I don't think it was ever mentioned in the church where I was. Then I studied at Wheaton College, where the school motto is, For Christ and His Kingdom. Even more importantly, as a student under the ministry of Dr. V. Raymond Edmond, the president of the college, I came to have a new appreciation of the kingdom. Dr. Edmond died while preaching at college chapel service. Although I had graduated by that time, I know the story well. He was talking about the proper way to come into the presence of a great king. His illustration was of a time he had an audience with Haile Selassie, then the ruler of Ethiopia, and Dr. Edmund detailed the preparations that were necessary. Then his message shifted as he talked about believers coming into the presence of a much greater king. He spoke of how we need to be clothed in the robes of righteousness. And while he talked, in the middle of that sentence, he was gone. From Wheaton College Chapel, he was issued into the courts of the king of the universe about whom he spoke. How fitting. I have no doubt that he was ready. Just as Dr. Edmund helped me understand the kingdom Maybe I can help others as well, and that would please me greatly. Friend, in talking about my college days back at Wheaton, when assignments like a term paper sometimes covered several months of work, I, I was thinking that I would suggest for you that you consider doing a topical Bible study concerning the kingdom as kind of a semester project. How's that sound? I can't predict how it will affect your grade, but... Knowing more about the kingdom should prepare you well for the final. Why not try it? I'm calling you to the great adventure of walking with your king in your everyday world. That's my assignment here. Thanks, David. That was a great review. Now you're going to talk about how does a person become a part of this remarkable kingdom of God. 
and a very thrilling message. Thy kingship come. That's the title of our present series. It's about the kingdom of God. But I suspect some people hearing these programs aren't sure whether or not they belong to Christ's wonderful kingdom. This visit is for them. Even if you've gone to church for many years, you may still experience some long-standing confusion on this matter. Perhaps it's painful to admit you're insecure as to whether Jesus, God's anointed king, has confirmed that you really belong to his kingdom. If we were talking face to face, you might say, David, I understand about not being able to point to Christ's kingdom on a map. That makes sense. But it still confuses me as to who's in the kingdom and who isn't. At least in men's kingdoms, the roads are marked so you know when you get there. Simply stated, my topic today is how do you find your way to Christ's kingdom? And how do you know when you have made entry? Let me put matters into perspective for you by asking five key questions. One, if Christ were to welcome you into his kingdom today, how would this affect the way you presently live? What changes would being a subject of this king make in your life? Jesus himself said that it was wise for a person to count the cost of such a decision. He told about a man who put up a tower and only half finished the job. Everyone laughed at him because he hadn't carefully thought through the project before jumping into it. The point is that people contemplating kingdom involvement should seriously consider what it would be like living under royal law. That last phrase, royal law, comes from James, the half-brother of Jesus, who writes in James 2.8, If you really fulfill the royal law, that is, the law of the king, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The other half of the royal law, or great commandment, as Christ expressed it in Matthew, is that you should love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, that's a big change for most of us. So are you ready to show God the love he deserves and demonstrate real concern for others also? Well, that's a basic requirement in the kingdom. It was both taught and modeled by the monarch himself and its expected behavior for all the king's subjects. Think it through. If you don't want to show love for God and love for people, then you probably shouldn't consider becoming one of this king's followers. Question two. Have you fallen short of this standard? Do you miss the stated target, love for God and love for fellow human beings? If so, then you understand what Scripture calls sin, which simply means to miss the mark. If this sounds too simplistic, think what a phenomenal change would occur in society if everyone hit the mark. Can you imagine what it would be like in your community if everyone consistently loved God and other people? Refusing to give God the love he deserves and putting oneself ahead of others is at the very center of the curse man experienced in the Garden of Eden that made living so difficult. And do you realize that when you miss the mark, you personally contribute to the problems this world knows? 
So question three, do you think you can bring about these necessary changes through self-effort? Are you capable of loving God and others by mere self-determination? Can you pull this off without divine help? The biblical answer to those questions is obviously no. Even if you could love both God and people for a while, how would you deal with the problem of your past offenses? If past sin isn't forgiven, you'll never experience what Paul writes about in Colossians 1.13, being delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. But further in that chapter, you'll discover that in spite of our estrangement from God, Colossians 1, 21 and 22, we were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Christ has reconciled us to God. In other words, he's made us friends with God again in Christ's body of flesh by his death. And do you believe that? Question four. Do you believe that Christ is able to supernaturally change who you are? Can Christ, through his death and resurrection, infuse your life with power to walk a new and better way? Do you think Christ can hear your request and by an act of his mercy forgive you and grant you this great favor? If you believe that Christ can do that, even though you can't prove it, there is within you the beginning of what the Bible calls faith. If your heart whispers, yes, I believe Jesus can do that, then you're very close to the kingdom. This is exactly the kind of faith a person needs to enter in. So now question five. If you feel Christ can change you, when would be a good time to ask him to do this? If you answered now, I suggest you bow immediately before this king. Literally, bowing is the best, perhaps alone in your room. But if that isn't possible, then at least mentally go down on one knee and picture yourself as a subject before your sovereign. From that kneeling position, tell the king you want a change that you want to live in the way that will please him as your monarch. You want his spirit, the king's spirit, to enter you, to cleanse you of all past disobedience, all your offenses against him and your sins against others. Tell him that you're desiring his spirit to make your body his home, and that you want him to begin the process of tutoring you in the royal law of his kingdom. Just one more thing. While you're bowing... Imagine that you're at the foot of a cross. Why? Because bowing before the great king's cross is a good way to enter the kingdom. Let me say it again. Bowing before the great king's cross is a good way to enter Christ's kingdom. Do you have that picture in mind? As you kneel, realize your Lord is on the cross because of you, because you have fallen short of his glory, because you consistently missed the mark. Now listen to the thief who agonizes on the cross next to Christ. 
overhear him say to the third dying man, Do you not fear the Lord? We're receiving due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. As you picture this scene and hear the thief make his plea, quickly add, Me too, Jesus. I want the same thing. I feel the way that man does. Can you hear me praying also? In this greatest drama of all history, now playing itself out on your personal behalf with darkness and the earth trembling and bystanders weeping, I believe you will hear the king's answer in your heart. Jesus, above whose head are the words, this is the king of the Jews, will silently whisper to your soul, truly I say to you, you also, will be with me in paradise. Hundreds of times in my life I've brought people to this sacred place where I first came to know him. Never once have I been with someone who heard Jesus say, No. I spoke with a young woman in her late 20s. She was weary and marred in many ways by the world, its sin, and her participation in it. She asked me, what if Jesus says no? Or worse, suppose he refuses to answer me. So many have treated me that way. If Jesus does, I fear it will be the final insult I could take. I sense your fear, I told her. But I've known this king a long time, and never once have I seen him act that way toward anyone. It would be inconsistent with what I know about him. And I was right. In a matter of minutes... After she made her request at the cross, she was saying, Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much for hearing me. And I see this prayer of gratitude being yours as well. When you request deliverance from the dominion of darkness, and when you ask to be welcomed into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, the Apostle John, a beloved friend of our Lord, wrote in the first chapter of his gospel to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become the children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of man, but of God. Two chapters later in his gospel, John uses a similar expression, being born anew as a way of entering the kingdom of God. For you, friend, if you're concerned about your status in the kingdom, going to the cross and experiencing this new birth is the most important item on your immediate agenda. Enter the gates today. It's the only point of entry to the kingdom of God, and you won't want to miss it. It will begin the great adventure of you walking with Christ in your everyday world. What a privilege. So that is how a person becomes a part of the kingdom of God. And, and some of you have a yearning in your heart. There's a warming in you toward this message, and we would invite you to do the things that David has suggested right now, right where you're sitting. Now, we're going to take the kingdom of God message and show you how we put that into imaginative literature in our trilogy called the Tales of the Kingdom Trilogy. And David will be reading some of those stories to you in the next podcast. 
You've been listening to the Before We Go podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please remember to rate, review, and share on whatever platform you listen. This podcast is copyright 2020 by Mainstay Ministries, Post Office Box 30, Wheaton, Illinois, 60189.